Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, I'm recording late on Wednesday the 21st of February out in Reykjavik, Iceland. Um, It's been an interesting day for games out here actually. Um, There was a Nintendo Partner Direct earlier today, so that's one of the news items in the intro this week. We'll go through a few of the announcements and release dates that came up there. Um, I've also been playing a little bit of Banishers, Ghosts of New Eden, uh, Don't Nod's double-A ghost story game, so I can give you some first impressions of that one. Also got a couple of codes and pickups, Balatro and Sifu are now in the docket for the podcast in the future. Uh, But the main event today is a game that I've talked about a lot. It was in the 2024 Indie Preview. It was in the winner of the, uh, the Best of Steam Next Fest episode. It is the psychedelic Metroidvania, Ultros, which is finally out. Um, I burned through it in a week and had an amazing time with this game. I absolutely loved it. Uh, Spoilers for the review. And I've got a lot of notes, a lot of thoughts. It's a really majestic game, Um, a lot to talk about. Um, So I'm looking forward to giving you a full review of that game as well. But let's start off with that Nintendo Partner Direct that happened earlier today. Um, I couldn't watch it, it happened in the middle of my workday. I forgot it was on, actually. But I did go and review the announcements, and there were a few interesting things to pull out of it. It wasn't a blockbuster, but there were some interesting things. Um, First up, Pentiment is a shadow drop, so that's coming out on Thursday the 22nd of February on Switch, as per the recent Xbox multi-platform news. Uh, which the world seemed to set its hair on fire about, at least on gamer Twitter, and run around screaming for a couple of weeks. Um, This is all it amounted to, really. Pentiment and Grounded coming to Switch, a couple games coming to PlayStation. Um, It doesn't seem like such a big deal now, does it? Um, There was also one interesting game announcement in the Partner Direct, and that is Ender Magnolia, Bloom in the Mist. This is a sequel to a game that I really liked, actually, called Ender Lilies, Quietus of the Nights. Very silly names, but um, interesting games. Ender Lilies is actually a, a gothic fairy tale horror metroidvania in the Hollow Knight mold with a beautiful art style, very, very hard, and very difficult bosses, a bit of a Souls-like feel to the whole thing. Um, but I would say, you know, because there's a lot of people out there waiting for Silksong, Silksong enthusiasts, Silksong awaiters, um, the Ender Lilies games, the Ender games, are for you. Um, so don't sleep on Ender Lilies. It's often on sale. Um, and if you like that one, we now know there's a sequel, Ender Magnolia, coming later this year. Um, other than that, the only things that I pulled out of the Direct were some release date announcements. A few games that I've mentioned before. The Snufkin game is coming out on March the 8th. Um, that seems like a quaint, fun one. Pepper Grinder, a big indie game this year, is coming out on March 28th. Unicorn Overlord, a tactics RPG that people seem to be talking about. Uh, That one's coming out on March 8th, and they dropped a demo at the Direct, so I'll be downloading that this weekend. Um, Another Crab's Treasure, the Souls-like from the people who made Going Under, that's coming out on April 25th. Um, World of Goo 2. Um, I never played the original World of Goo, but people seem to speak about it in kind of hallowed tones. Uh, But that's coming out as a Switch exclusive, a rare late console life switch exclusive on may 23rd um, and finally suika game is getting a multiplayer mode that's the very silly very goofy very fun uh, fruit tetris kind of game with a physics thing going on um, is getting multiplayer so you can look forward to 
uh, popping pineapples with your friends now. Um, so that was the Nintendo Partner Direct. Um, I will also mention Banishers Ghosts of New Eden. I um, was lucky enough to get a code for this one, so I've been playing it on Xbox. Um, I've played a couple of hours now, and I'm having a pretty good time with it, actually. It's by Don't Nod, um, traditionally the makers of choice-based story games, from Life is Strange to Harmony, Fall of Reverie, to uh, Jusant last year, actually. So they've been on a pretty hot streak. They're a pretty good developer right now. Uh, Banishers Ghosts of New Eden is a third-person action-adventure in the Plague Tale, Last of Us kind of mould. Um, it has wide linear areas to explore. It is episodic. Um, you play a ghost hunter who is out in uh, a colonial American New England setting in the 1600s. Um, you're in a, a spooky little village under constant cloud, uh, which has a haunting going on. Um, and you have to solve different hauntings, banish ghosts. There is a cool combat where you lock onto enemies, light and heavy attacks, dodges, magic abilities, things like that. It has a very great heavy mood. It feels like a ghost story. Um, it has that that constant feel of unease, which I quite enjoy, actually. It's quite cinematic. And I will say that the, uh, the compelling central character pairing, there's a male and female character at the centre of the story, and um, they have great voice actors um, and really nice facial capture on the main characters. Um, lots of nice-looking light, fog and weather. Um, it's locked at 60 FPS on the Xbox, which feels great, actually. Um, I would say it's a little slow-moving gameplay-wise. There are some mysteries that you're supposed to crack, but they honestly feel like rather than actually doing any detective work, you're picking up three things and then going and speaking to someone, and then the mystery gets solved without your help, kind of. So it's a little automated. Um, so I'm not sure how that will um, last over a 20-hour playtime, but I will say that I have been enjoying this one so far. It's a little bit like a playable Netflix um, kind of vibe to it, where you're doing episodes of stories, you meet someone who has a haunting, you solve it, you move on, and that was like a solid half hour, one hour of gameplay. Um, so I'll be coming back to that one, Banishers Ghosts of New Eden, I'm having a good time with it. Um, I also picked up a code for Balatro, um, this one was not on my radar, but people have been talking about it, it's an odd looking card game that seems to subvert usual card rules, introduce strange cards, have strange hands, uh, but it's been tearing it up online. Um, it has a Metacritic 92 currently. Seems to be a cult hit, so I'm looking forward to getting that one downloaded as well. Um, and I also picked up Sifu. Um, finally, the very, very difficult, famously Kung Fu game. Um, it's on a sale on Xbox. Um, I've been dying to play it, but um, I had a worry that I wasn't going to be able to play it because it's so famously difficult. Uh, but Chip Dip 18 over in the Discord said that it has... Um, some difficulty options that came in after release um, and that he found it quite manageable. So I'm quite curious to try Sifu as well. So that's all of the news and all of the things that I've been playing. Just before we dive into the Ultros review, um, I would like to say a big thank you to Shy Guy, who is the new $5 patron over on Patreon. Um, Shy Guy sent me a very nice message, said they were a long-time listener of the podcast. Um, and they signed up on the podcast's fourth birthday last week on the exact day. So I really appreciate that. Big thank you to Shy Guy. And a big thank you to all of my patrons. Um, if you would like to join Patreon and support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild for one, three, or five dollars a month. Um, you get bonus episodes, you get invited to our lovely Discord community, um, and you get some other fun perks as well. I will put a link in the show notes if you would like to support the podcast at Patreon. Um, and a big thank you also to all of the show's new YouTube subscribers. It's been flying up lately. We've just passed 500. 
Um, I'll be posting more videos soon. Um, and also thanks to everyone who's been leaving reviews and star ratings for the podcast in various places where you can do that. And with all of that said, let's move on and talk about this wonderful game we have to discuss this week, Ultros. I've been really looking forward to talking about Ultros. I, I love this game. Um, I raced through it. I was feeling so good playing this game. You know when you find a game that you click with, that you become obsessed by, that you think about when you wake up in the morning, um, when you're working, you're looking forward to playing it after dinner. Um, the kind of game where you sink in and play four hour sessions and then stop just because you're too tired and then can't wait to pick up again. Um, Ultros was one of those for me, so I've been really looking forward to talking about this one. Um, it's close to the record that I have, the amount of notes. I've got 4,000 words of notes here. Um, so this is an essay-length review, um, so buckle up, and I hope you're up for it. I will say there's going to be a spoiler warning about halfway through, but I tried to cut the review into two, so that the front half gives people who are thinking of playing the game enough of an idea of what it is um, and whether they would like to buy it and the back half is a discussion about spoilers, which I've basically drawn after the first boss um, or after the end of the demo. Um, so that's roughly how this review is structured. Uh, but the game is out now on PlayStation and Steam, PlayStation console exclusive. Uh, I played it on the ROG Ally where it ran flawlessly and I did not have a single bug throughout my playthrough. It was a clean game. Um, it's published by Kepler Interactive who are having a bit of a hot streak as they have Pacific Drive coming up as well. It was Kepler who sent me a review code, so thanks for that. It's developed by Hadok, which seems to be a kind of a Swedish supergroup. Um, the developer is named Hugo Bile, I think I'm saying that right, who worked on Thea, a game that I've reviewed in the past on this show. Um, the art is by an artist called El Huervo, um, who did some wonderful, colourful paintings that just... Uh, sear the memory really and it has a very very impressive score a symphonic score by Rat Vader and I'll be peppering tracks from that throughout this review for you to enjoy um, I hope to talk to Hugo on the show soon by the way I'm chatting with Hugo right now and um, so if all goes well there will be an interview about this game coming up soon after this review um, the game has a, a Metacritic 82 at the time of recording which is respectable um, obviously but a little low in my opinion. Uh, GamesRadar gave it a 9 out of 10 and said it's a deceptively deep and mechanical metroidvania with eye-watering psychedelic vibes. It's not easy to do something fresh and unique in video games, but I've never played a game like Ultros, and for that alone, it is worth recommending. Good review from GamesRadar there, good bold review. Um, Digital Radar said Ultros is a bold and beautiful artistic vision, but a convoluted metroidvania. Um, and I think I would, I would agree that it is actually convoluted, but I think I would reframe the convolution um, as layers of complication and welcome complexity in this case. And I will be getting into why I think so later in the review. Um, How Long to Beat has this one at 8.5 hours for the main quest, which I find startling <laughs> given my playtime. Uh, main and sides come in at 14. This is a low sample size, but people say you can do that 
in 14 hours. My playthrough currently sits at double that. I played for 28 hours. Uh, that included a lot of side stuff, that included a lot of secrets, that included some um, intentional backtracking, breaking open walls, using my abilities to find new areas for collectibles, experimenting with abilities and doing optional puzzles. Um, so I really did get my money's worth out of this one. And um, I often played four hour sessions and I was really just lost in the screen for that time. Um, I did also go for the true ending, or at least I think it is. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there was more endings or one for the true completionists out there. There are definitely things that I didn't do. Um, but you can power through this one rapidly if you want to, so that's roughly your range. Eight hours for just the story and the early ending, 14 for main and sides, 28 if you want to be like me and just spend your life in Ultras. Uh, the developers described this one by saying, Ultras is a psychedelic metroidvania where you wake up stranded on the sarcophagus, a cosmic uterus holding an ancient demonic being. Trapped in the loop of a black hole, you will have to explore the sarcophagus and meet its inhabitants to understand the part you play. Um, I have to say about this one, Ultras is an instant classic that revitalizes the metroidvania genre. The prismic visuals and symphonic score are a sensual treat and the game's ingenious ecosystem slowly blooms into a map-spanning meta-puzzle that demands patience, observation, curiosity, and creativity. Um, so I'm obviously very high on this one. I mean, almost literally. I was really buzzing while I was playing this game. Something about the combination of the bright colors, the music, um, the theming, um, the ecological theming of the game, um, and the high sci-fi setting of it all just really set my brain alight. Um, I think this is easily the best game that I've played in 2024 so far. So let's get into it and start with an overview of this game. Um, it is a Metroidvania, that's gated exploration. You are exploring, you're engaging in combat, um, you're unlocking new areas, new skills, and slowly unwrapping a story. Um, the game is set on a living space station called the Sarcophagus, the nature of which is mysterious to us at the start, and perhaps even at the end, to be honest. Um, our silent protagonist wakes up in a field of flowers, um, colourful, swaying flowers. Um, the camera zooms out as they wake up. We don't know who they are. They are a silent protagonist. Um, but as we start to explore, um, the first thing that's going to strike you is, of course, the art style. Um, it is eye-poppingly colourful. There is um, swaying flora growing everywhere from ceilings, from walls, from the ground. As you run, you will disturb these plants. They will burst into pollen. Um, it's just a sight. It really is a sight. And that in itself, that, that visual is a hook. It's one of the many hooks that this game has. Um, but as you move on, you realise that there is civilization here too. There are caves that turn into passages. Um, and soon there are paintings, there are sculptures, there are mysterious machines. Um, and that's just in the opening section. So we're, we're getting some environmental storytelling right off the bat. Uh, but soon enough, we come across a corpse um, with a sword. And we take the sword and the shade of its former owner appears and speaks to us. And they speak in, in pretty cryptic terms and start to explain some loose basics, some hints at where we are. We learn that we are trapped in this space station because of some kind of temporal anomaly. Um, we are told that there is a demon being contained here, that the station 
the, the, uh, the place that we are is pregnant with a demon called Ultros. The shade tells us that we can help. Um, they mark seven points of interest on the map. And with that, out we go into the sarcophagus to follow this breadcrumb trail. And we only have a very small area of the map. The map is revealed room by room as you move on. Um, and these points of interest are marked all across the map. And we realize this is going to be quite a sizable play area. But that gave me a really good feeling at the start of this game. It was like that step out open world moment where you realize just how big the map is. Um, it reminded me of Hollow Knight a little bit, this one. So many areas to explore. Um, and I like that we got those pins in the map to aim for right at the start. So out we go into the sarcophagus to follow the trail, to try and untangle this, this cosmic mystery that we seem to be roped into, and to try and escape this strange, beautiful, mysterious place. But I do think that when talking about Ultras, you do have to start with the aesthetic of this game. And I think that there is more to that than just looking nice. Although the game does look amazing. Um, it is hand-drawn. It has a beautiful prismic color palette, the likes of which I've just not seen in a game before. Uh, it looks like neon stained glass psychedelia. It has a kind of an acid rock look to it, but also this strange stained glass kind of feel as well. Um, it has cosmetic effects as you run around, like all of the plants that surround you, the glitter, the, the shining of it all. There are popping pustules that you will smash. There are swaying plants that will pop as you run by or hit them. Um, there are layers of nature in this game and evidence of civilizations, plural, uh, past and present. There is strange technology. I mean, there are these endless rooms and corridors full of squelchy, verdant nature and evidence of civilizations that we don't know anything about yet. It's something very special, and right from the start, it's a pleasure to explore. And I would also say when speaking about the visuals of the game that it is a very visually busy environment. Um, and one that I found incredibly stimulating. Um, it seemed to just light up my brain when I was playing this game. I've had a similar sensation walking into art galleries sometimes, looking at work by Yayo Kusama or by Chris Ophili. Um, that colorful style of art just seems to hit me physically. And this game did that too. I got a kind of a tingling synesthesia when I was playing this game. Um, I was responding to the color. I was responding to the sound. I was really just buzzing as I played Ultros. And so I think even in trickier moments, this gave me a leg up on, on the average player because I was just responding so strongly to the game that every moment that I spent in it was a pleasure. And I would also say that visuals are more than just cosmetic. Um, and I think that if a game is fun just to be in and just to look at and just to listen to, and um, that has a knock-on effect that goes beyond just a visual appeal. I think when you're stuck 
running back through previous areas doesn't feel like a chore if you are enjoying every second of the game because it is so aesthetically strong. So when frustrated, it is still a pleasure to be in the game. Um, and so I think that looking and sounding and feeling as amazing as it does is a huge boon for Ultros. And for me, it meant that the game had earned extra patience from me. And in its trickier moments, um, I was still there. I was still in it. I was still happy. And I often found myself in a trance playing Ultros. I really did. Um, I was drifting into the screen. I was fully immersed in this world. And for a 2D Metroidvania kind of game, I think that that, that effect speaks very highly of the quality. The aesthetic is, of course, more than just the visuals. The sound matters a lot in this game. Um, the soundscape is super interesting. It is unique. It is very juicy. It is immersive. We hear the sounds of nature. We hear croaking frogs. We hear whistling exotic birds. We hear bubbling and rustling and squelching. It is like being deep in an alien jungle. Um, and all of these sounds were actually recorded by the composer Rat Vader, who went all the way to Peru to collect field recordings. They went on a trip down the Amazon River um, and the sounds that they recorded, they brought home and then they manipulated them to sound alien but familiar with effects and with pitching. Um, and it really, really worked. It's so enticing. Um, it made my senses prickle. Um, it made me feel very alert. Um, the sonic palette was beautiful in this game. And of course, the same goes for the music. We are listening to it now. The score is also by Rat Vader. It has cello, it has strings, it has electronics. There is a track with sitar on it that I really enjoyed. It is lush and ambient, vibey, uh, really rich with layers of sound. Um, and it can move between moods. It can be lyrical, haunting, it can be pulse racing in combat. Uh, this is a soundtrack for the books um, and the audio palette as a whole adds a huge amount to this game. I'd like to give a little shout out to the dialogue and the text in this segment. Um, it might not be the kind of thing you traditionally think about when you think about the aesthetic of a game, but the story and the lore of this game are part of the feel. They are intentionally vague. They are packed with dense jargon, proper nouns, planet and species names, names of plants, names of people, names of races, the names of rooms and spaces and enigmatic machines. The characters all have voices and I really enjoyed that. It is intentionally high sci-fi um, and I think that these words too are painted from a bright palette there is a sense of oblique mysticism that permeates the texts in this game uh, is a strong vibe um, and it really contributes to the sense of place we get here um, and taken together um, all of this stuff the look the sound the music the writing um, the feel the story it all coheres into something very heady it is attractive, it's unusual, it is inviting and intriguing. There's a lot, there's a lot here, there's a lot of meat on this. Um, and it's immediately obvious from all of this that this game is an extremely ambitious aesthetic work, not just in terms of looking or sounding good, um, but in a way that all aspects feel thought out and connected. For something that is so enigmatic in nature, it has a wonderful coherency of vision. I think that the people who made this really knew what they were doing, knew what they were making together, 
Um, it feels like there is some kind of coherency and click here. Um, and while all of their individual talents are plain to see, um, I think it is this foundationally interconnected feeling of the overall work that impresses me the most. Um, very much like the biosphere that the game contains. Um, all of the parts rely on each other and build upon each other. Um, and my eyes and ears and my mind just drank all of this in. Um, I think that Ultros is an absolute treat right from the beginning. Um, and that's before we even get to the gameplay itself. So let's get to it. I mean, it is a Metroidvania. You're going to spend some time exploring. Um, the map is very fun to explore. Um, there are sideways corridors. It's a vertical spaces. Um, you will slide down slopes. You will smash through breakable walls to discover new passageways. Um, there are long corridors full of strange machines and large caverns um, of mysterious purpose. There's secrets everywhere, Metroidvania things, locked doors, high ledges that you can't reach yet. Um, there are statues all over the map that just say, waiting for connection. Um, there are lots of things that you first find. And if you've played a Metroidvania, you know that they won't come into play until much later. Um, it has a good map, which I think is very important for Metroidvania. Um, I thought that the game's map was really functional. Um, rooms with unexplored exits are important to identify. If I think back to Hollow Knight, you would be looking at it with a magnifying glass and trying to find any little nick in the line of a wall. Um, here they have solved that problem. If a room has an unexplored exit, it is marked with a pink glow, which was very, very helpful. Um, and I will say that um, several people in the patron discord were playing this alongside me um, and they talked about feeling lost or disoriented or confused to the point of frustration. Um, but my experience was very different. Um, I just didn't in this game. Um, I felt right at home with the map. I felt right at home with the world. Um, and I always seemed to end up where I was meant to be. So whatever the, the signals were and um, whatever the signposting was, that was trying to push me to where I was supposed to go next. Um, my brain was definitely picking up on it. Um, um, I felt that there was an invisible hand guiding me through this game. Um, I, it was pushing me towards areas where um, there were openings for me. If I got new skills, I always felt that I knew where to go to use that skill to open the way forward. You just uh, you have to bank things as you go through these games, right? Um, one criticism in the Discord was that there were no map pins. Um, that was something that was very helpful in Hollow Knight, actually, um, being able to use red, blue, different colored pins to mark the map and remind yourself. Um, in the recent Prince of Persia game, there was also a snapshot system. Um, there's nothing like that here. Um, I personally didn't feel like I needed it, um, but I will speak for several people in the Discord who felt like they did. Um, but I will say that unveiling the map itself was satisfying. Um, it took patience, um, it took re-exploring old areas, it took homing in on those little pink auras to try and find out if there was a way forward. Sometimes the way forward isn't what it seems, sometimes you have to go backwards to go forward, or find a tiny crack in the wall to break it open. But it wasn't as bad as like Super Metroid, I felt that it was all very accessible. Um, and I did get an emotional flashback to Hollow Knight, uh, one of the best Metroidvanias of them all. Uh, my first time exploring the Hollow Nest, there was the same sense of fascination about what this strange, intricate place is all about. The sense that you are sinking into something special, something interesting. Um, and I had a very strong sense of uh, drive to go and tinker around the edges to find the next chink in this map's armor and to open the next way forward.
Another big part of the gameplay is, of course, combat. Um, it's not a dominant focus in this game, um, but it is here. Um, there are quite a few enemy types. There are different tactics that you will need to take them down. And there are a fair few tools for taking them down um, via the skill tree. Um, so combat, you have a basic combo, which you can add to over time. You have a shield breaking charge attack. You have jumping attacks. You have a dodge and a counter, which are very important. Uh, when an enemy comes for you and you see a red flash on screen, that is your cue to hit dodge. You will dodge through the enemy and you can then hit them from behind for extra damage. Um, always satisfying. Um, and you can add to that moveset as well. You end up with a very good snappy moveset and it feels good. The bouts are short, they're over quickly. Um, and the combat, is, the combat is good in this game, I would say. Um, but as in many aspects of Ultras, there are other layers to it. Um, there is a gameplay motivation to use the full moveset that you were given. Um, if you use the same moves all of the time, the pickups that enemies drop are damaged. Um, so rather than a pristine, say, like bug cranium or a severed trunk, the things that you need, they are resources in the game. Instead, if you use the same move again and again and again, you will just get bloody mush or like entrails. Uh, you can still consume them for health, um, the game is like that, but it's just less useful. Um, so there's this concept of a clean kill, uh, where you will get an undamaged pickup instead. But getting a clean kill involves perfect variety. Um, and this only happens if you take down an enemy without using the same move twice. So you have to change up your moves and take out enemies using only unique moves. Um, and some enemies only take a few hits, so it's easy enough. You'll do a light attack, a charge attack, a jump attack, and then they are gone. Um, but tougher enemies, of course, with more valuable parts, uh, require more hits, and so perfect variety gets harder, especially under pressure when they are coming for you. Um, and so this turns combat into a fun mini-game all of its own, um, and that in turn is connected to the power-up system because of these pickups. You need pristine pickups if you're going to open up the skill tree because you need nutrients for that. So it's all ingeniously interwoven um, and it stops combat from becoming like a tuned out automatism as it often will in, in these kind of games. Um, and I'd say that just, just that little glimpse of interconnected systems, it's one, it's one of many special touches in Ultros. Um, it changes up or builds upon the basic. Um, the familiar Metroidvania mechanics that we've seen a hundred times before, things that we might expect to see, things that we are sort of built to expect at this point. Um, this game undermines them, it subverts them, it builds upon them and it layers them up. Um, so everything comes with just a little more imagination than usual, extra wrinkles in gameplay, extra mechanics you might not expect. Um, there are lots of those that I'll be talking about and, and the combat is one such example. The skill tree is another, so when you eat these grisly pickups, whether they are bloody mush, or whether they are pristine insect parts, um, they will up your meters in various aspects. You have four different meters, uh, different colors, red, blue, yellow, and green, I think. Um, and you need to top these up by eating parts. And then when you're at a save point, you can access the cortex, which is the Ultras skill tree. It is set out like a matrix, lots of things that are interconnected. Uh, when you unlock one, it will open up others until the whole matrix is revealed. Um, and so consuming different ingredients at save points will fill the various meters 
and then based on how full those meters are, you can unlock the different skills. Um, skills vary. They are combat skills, such as an extra hit in your basic combo, a flying kick, the ability to swat away projectiles, increased damage from counters, that kind of thing. There are traversal ones, such as a wall jump or a second higher jump if you jump twice on the spot. Very useful. Um, there are skills relating to animals. There are skills relating to planting seeds. Um, and some seem more useful than others at first, um, but all of them eventually have their place. They all click into place and their uses become apparent. Um, and I really enjoyed deciding what I wanted the most, uh, looking at what I had the nutrition for, trading off, like should I save my nutrition and try and get some more blue ingredients to go for that big one, or just take what I can get right now. Um, and there is another twist to the Cortex that I'll talk about after the spoiler break. And we are getting through the things that I feel safe talking about, but before we get to that spoiler break, I will also talk about the bosses. So as you explore the map, powering up, finding save points, um, you will sometimes encounter bosses. Um, sometimes they are humanoid individuals like you, sometimes they are large, corrupted-seeming weirdo animals or beings. Um, and they are really fun. They are not a focus. I think I only died once um, to a boss in this game. Um, so they were very, very manageable, but they are fun. They break up the play. Um, they act as punctuation and the flow of things. And they add interest and they have, you know, move sets to learn, two or three moves or four weak points to hit. Uh, not a highlight of the game, but perfectly solid and serviceable. Uh, when you take out a boss, you will reach the end of the, uh, the gameplay loop here, which is that you will find these special chambers, the things that were marked on your map. Inside of them, there is some kind of sleeping figure suspended in a tank um, and there weren't any interactable elements when I first found this thing so I thought well what can I do really the only thing that occurred to me was to smash it um, so I smashed the first shaman tank um, and it felt climactic the music swelled the tank produced this purple tendril of energy leading back through the map to the giant chamber at the center of uh, the sarcophagus uh, where something big is starting to happen. A machine is spinning up something. There is energy crackling in the air, which only increases as we destroy each shaman. Um, so that's the gameplay loop of um, Ultros, the initial gameplay loop. You go out into the map, you solve traversal puzzles, you open the way forward, you pour over the map and break down walls, find your ways to these shaman, you fight bosses, you smash the tanks, and you get new abilities. Um, to hasten the birth of Ultras. And I think that's about as far as I can go without getting into spoilers. So I think um, I will do a spoiler break here. Um, but before I go, um, if you are leaving the podcast right now, I just want to give you a little summary about the game. If you're thinking of buying it, um, I will reiterate that this, this game goes above and beyond what I was expecting in terms of the art and music, um, but also in terms of the gameplay and structure. There's a lot that I can't talk about without spoiling it, that I think that you should discover for yourself. Um, so please do hop off now um, if you're interested in this game. I will say that it never stopped surprising me. It layers the mechanics up. Um, the biosphere becomes very interesting, and the ecosystem, um, your goals as a player evolve over time. It is not a standard Metroidvania. Um, it's a 2D game, but it makes me invoke everything from Dead Cells to Outer Wilds to Death Stranding in different conversations. Um, so if you're on the fence about playing this one, for me, it's a 10 out of 10. Um, and second, yeah, please don't listen any further if you're thinking of playing. 
um, hop off now um, and thank you for listening if you're dipping out um, but if you have played Ultros if you are ready for the spoilers um, then I'll be right back after this So I think that the first way in which Ultros really surprised me after the demo, the first uh, one of the first hints that there was more going on here than met the eye, is the the loop. Um, so after the first big boss fight of the game, you are surprised by the arrival of the loop. There is a very cool animation where we see the sarcophagus from the outside. It is being consumed by an explosion of energy and dark tentacles, like a Lovecraftian space demon being born. It's a very cool climactic sequence. And a poetic three-line phrase appears on the screen. It says, the cycle begins anew. Let our quiet mycelium lament the unrest and return to what once was. Um, and then a capital U appears on the screen, the Ultros insignia, which morphs into a circle, the shape with no end. Um, and then we wake up again, and we're back in the same spot where we began. Um, it's a repeat of the very start of the game. We are once again unarmed. The skill tree has been reset. The precious, the all-precious double jump is gone. Um, and it turns out that we're in a time loop. So whenever you destroy a shaman, you are returned to the start of the game. Um, there is no sword, there is no skills, there is no extractor, which is the device that gives you your your double jump, your your skills that you're going to be um, accruing throughout your playthrough of Ultros. Um, and the first time this happened, to be honest, my heart kind of sank. I was like, what is this stealth roguelike? Um, I'm not the biggest roguelike fan. Um, I am a fan of Metroidvanias. I like the progression. I like the opening up of the map. I like building up my skills, the feeling that I'm on a journey and always improving along the way. Um, but despite that little sting I played on, of course, and I have to say that I grew to love this decision. Um, it is one of many decisions in Ultras that tears up the rulebook. Um, it throws away one of these this genre's main conventions. Um, it's a roguelike gesture, um, because you do ultimately get your stuff back. You do find the sword again in the same place. You find the extractor in the same place. Um, and you get your skills back. So it's a roguelike moment, but it was definitely a rug pull. And I think the players respond to this differently. In the Discord, there were some folks that were kind of sad about it and bummed about it and said it didn't feel good. And I agree that it didn't feel good, but I think that that sting was intentional. I think that sting was worth it. Um, and I appreciate that Ultros doesn't stick to the formula. Um, we've played so many Metroidvanias that they've become tropes. Um, and I love that Ultros undermines some of those tropes. So we soon get the extractor back, the double jump is back, and we're off again. Um, but the loop itself is used in some interesting ways. Um, for example, plants will carry over from loop to loop. If you plant a seed in one loop, and then go and kill a shaman, um, and go to the Ultros room, and you get sucked into the void, you see that sequence again. Um, next time you arrive back, um, you may have lost your abilities, but the plants have still been growing. There is a mnemonic quality 
There is a quality of memory in this place. If you have planted a seed, that plant will now have grown bigger. Um, in a very basic sense, that might mean that it has grown higher, so you can climb onto it and reach a high area. Um, in other senses, you may have planted um, a, a long tendril-like plant that will have grown through a barrier and smashed it. Um, you might find that the loop just affects the landscape. So um, at first you're just planting to harvest nutrients, which you can use to unlock the cortex and get new skills. Um, but over time, um, the whole landscape of the sarcophagus is changing based on your decisions. Doors are opening, platforms are higher, areas are becoming accessible. Um, and that creates an interesting new type of planning in the mind of the player, in my mind at least. Um, and a kind of a cause and effect kind of thinking, where you start to think of the whole ecosystem and what you can do um, to open up different areas and how you can use the plants that you are planting. Very, very, very interesting how the plants and the gardening aspect of this game uh, comes to the fore. And it's one of the one of the things that swings your understanding of the space and of the game. Um, secondly, when it comes to the loop, um, you do lose all your skills, but um, you do find pickups called mnemonic mycelium, um, and that will allow you to pin certain skills in the cortex in place. When you pin them, that means they will carry on to the next loop. And because the nodes of the matrix, the skill tree, open up one by one, and you start in the center, you work your way out, if you get to the edge of the, the cortex, the edge of the skill tree, and you put a pin there, that means many skills that would have taken a lot of eating and a lot of powering up to get to, because you have to open all the nodes to get there. If you pin it, not only is that one pinned for the next round, but all of the ones around it are now easily accessible too. So the skill tree itself becomes another mini game that has a layer of strategy on it. Um, and I really enjoyed that as well. And finally, we will meet characters again and again from loop to loop. Some seem to remember nothing of the previous loop. Others seem to get a sense that something is going on. Um, the different characters will respond in different ways. Some you will have identical interactions with. Um, some will think they know you from before. So there is some bleeding over going on here, which adds to the hallucinogenic feeling of the whole thing. Um, the next thing I wanted to mention beyond the spoiler wall, here we are in the, the far north of this podcast, um, is the ecosystem of the game. Um, there are glowing spots on the floor as you walk around. At first, you're wondering what they are for. Um, the character, the gardener, will teach you that you can plant seeds. He will teach you that plants grow over time. He will teach you that you can add nutrients to plants. Um, and so we're slowly introduced to different kinds of seeds. And I love that about the game. Um, I love that all of the plants have different descriptions and different functions. At first, we think they are just for nutrients, but we learn their environmental effects. Uh, we learn that there are creepers that will grow indefinitely in certain conditions. They will grow huge, for example, to gum up machinery and open a way forward. Others spurt liquid that will run downhill, and everywhere the liquid drops, it will grow more plants. So suddenly you can populate an entire vertical space with just one plant in a strategic place. Um, some are grass that will grow horizontally very, very quickly, and it will make you run faster. So if you drop that in a long corridor that you're using a lot, suddenly you are racing through it at high speed, uh, reminiscent of Super Metroid. Um, others are like giant electrically conductive monstera that will quickly fill an entire space. And at first they seem like a huge nuisance because you have to avoid these uh, electric nodes that appear. But later on, 
we will realise that that plant is actually invaluable. Um, and so things that seemed initially hostile or like a hassle, uh, we will slowly learn that every plant has its place and every plant has its use. And the same can be said for the, the fauna. So there will be creatures that at first attack you when you come near, um, but it will turn out over time that you will come to understand them a lot better than you first did. Um, for example, sometimes there is a barren spot where you might need to grow a plant for one reason or another. And we will learn that if you feed an animal by throwing food to it, um, the right kind of food for that species, um, and they all eat different stuff, um, then we will make them produce manure from loop to loop that will create a planting spot in a future loop, which means that this barren stretch has become fertile and that has massive gameplay implications. Um, and I think that what all of this means, the hostile creatures, the hostile plants, um, growing an understanding of what seeds mean, what planting means, planting things in the right places, how hostile creatures can be tamed and what taming them means, we are slowly changing focus on this world. Um, and rather than being an aggressive outsider, we are coming to learn that everything, absolutely everything, has its place um, and is part of a bigger whole of which we are a part too. There is even a skill, an unlock, that will make enemies stop seeing you as a threat if you've eaten enough, if your levels are high enough, your nutrient levels, as if the player's pheromones have become safe. So you can run past enemies in the late game um, and you are no longer an outsider you're part of this ecosystem running undisturbed among the flora and the fauna um, and this is something that video games just don't often present um, it represents a shift in thinking that happens during the game uh, we don't usually see this in video game design it was like being deprogrammed of dogma honestly um, from the usual kill harvest power up cycle of games in this game we come into harmony with the biosphere we learn its quirks we observe we are taught we learn what kind of foods different animals like. We learn what kind of plants will cause knock-on effects in the environment. Um, this slow shift of thinking um, felt to me profound in a way, in the same way as a game like Terra Nil. I just adored it. Um, it made this game feel very, very special. getting into ultra spoiler territory now so if you are still hanging around with any plans to play this game get out of here um, i'm going to talk about the living network now and that's something that was a wonderful surprise in this game um, so throughout the map there are crystal buds growing everywhere you barely notice them at first maybe they catch your eye maybe you wonder there are also statues the statues that say awaiting connection um, and there are of course the save pods dotted around the map but deep down at the bottom of the map, outside the bottom of the station, amongst some desolate floating space rocks, we make a big discovery, and that is the existence of the living network. We find the source of a signal that connects to the player in the form of a wavy line of energy. As we move away, the line stretches. If we get too far away, it will break. Um, but if we notice as we are running with this signal attached, that we get near a certain kind of flower, a ring will appear around the flower, making it a target. Um, and the signal will connect to it if we touch it. It forms a new node. And from there, we go from flower to flower, to the next, to the next, to the next, and create node after node after node. 
they burst into light when we do so. And this is the spreading of a living network, a kind of a natural internet. The game suddenly changes completely. We have a new task, and that is to spread the living network throughout the entire ship. To be honest, this, this part of the game just blew my entire mind. Um, it became apparent that I was presented, that I was being presented with a huge world-spanning puzzle that required an understanding and a manipulation of everything I had learned about the game's ecosystem and map. Um, it uses everything that you've learned along the way. Um, and I felt like the game had changed entirely from where I started as a sword-wielding stranger. Um, the character has now come into tune with the ecosystem Hostile animals no longer see you as a threat. Crystal buds that line the walls suddenly burst into light and become all important to be used as new nodes to carry a signal throughout the whole ship. Um, and it made me rethink the map. Barren passageways suddenly became a new kind of problem. Um, if they don't have nodes and they don't have planting spots, then how can they get through there? Uh, when you plant plants, they will sometimes grow buds that turns them into nodes. But with no planting spots, how could I carry the signal further? Is there a way around? You end up exploring different nooks of the map, looking for unlikely ways to carry the signal. Um, you learn that swimming in liquid makes the signal stretch indefinitely. Um, so liquid is conductive. You learn that some of the plants will grow buds immediately when you plant them and use compost, for example. Um, some won't ever grow buds. Um, and you learn that connecting a save pod creates a fast travel point. So you are actually collect connecting um, the save pods to a kind of a fast travel internet as well. But the biggest revelation of all is when you carry the signal to the shaman pods that you've been breaking throughout the game. Um, it lights them up um, in a big flashing display of light. They flower, the music changes optimistically, and that sinister tendril of light that leads back to the Ultras chamber turns from toxic purple to a bright, luminous green. And this point of the game just filled me with purpose. I was very, very excited playing this. It reminded me a little bit of Death Stranding when you, you realise that you can build the motorway with the help of other people. So puzzling out how to get the signal through barren areas up to high ledges that seem inaccessible, it's a huge puzzle with many, many smaller puzzles, traversal puzzles, locked into it. You have to thread the signal through strange corners, locked doors. It was a glorious map-spanning meta-puzzle that I really enjoyed, a game within the game. Um, and all I can say really is, is it's genius. So chapeau, bravo, um, and well done for, for designing such a, a wonderful part of Ultras. Um, the other outcome of reconnecting all of the shamans to the living network is that there are two endings to this game. The first is the violent ending, as the trophy calls it, which is accessible after you destroy all of the shaman, a big puzzle in itself. Um, there is a character called Qualia that you meet in this game who has a very interesting arc. Um, Qualia is a Berian, she is a priestess, um, she is an acolyte of these sleeping shaman and she believes that it is her destiny 
to birth Ultros into the universe. So when you start doing all of this stuff to the ecosystem, um, Qualia realizes that you are perhaps the one and that she might not be. Um, she seems to fall into confusion about this and at various times she will become an antagonist. At other times she seems to grapple with the fact that you are doing what needs to be done and she tries to help you. I really enjoyed Qualia's character arc and felt that it was the strongest in the game by some way. Um, but if you do pursue the violent ending, this is accessible after the player destroys all the shaman. Um, you battle Qualia, who then gives you a final skill at the very last moment, recognizes that you're the one that is getting things done around here, um, and says, please go and trigger the failsafe, bring balance back to the birth. You get a new ability, which is a returner, which will allow you to be able to manually trigger a new loop. Very, very handy. But when you do trigger that loop, when you do manually trigger a loop, you appear back at the starting point. This time the gardener is there. He has an escape pod. He says, this place is going down. We need to get out of here. Just tell me when you're ready and we can leave. And you can roll credits right then and there. You will get a sequence. You'll get an escape sequence. You have a conversation with gardener and you head out into the stars as the credits roll. Um, but that feels so woefully incomplete at that point, having destroyed all of these shaman and with the living network half connected, um, there was so much more to be done to get a satisfying ending. Um, so you can pursue instead what the, the game calls the peaceful ending. This is when you connect all of the shaman to the living network one by one, um, and it triggers the birth of Ultros in a different way. Um, you get a sequence in which Qualia and the player come together in the birth chamber to perform a ritual together um, to birth Ultros, and then we see the outside of the station and the whole thing just vanishes and blinks out of existence and the credits roll, uh, which I found very anticlimactic. Um, after all of the work I had done, after the, the long complex puzzle and all of the micro puzzles of threading that signal, the living network to all of these hard to reach shaman, it did feel anticlimactic. So I was waiting with bated breath for a post credits scene. Um, and there is one, but it's very short. We basically see uh, the planet that is lies near um, where the sarcophagus has been this whole time. Um, and we see something appear, something small, just a green dot that then falls into the planet's atmosphere. And this mirrors one of the events that we see in the memories of the shaman, because every time you destroy a shaman, you see the same corrupted memory, a violent memory. But as you connect them to the living network, you see different memories instead. Um, you can watch them in sequence once you've connected all of the shaman. And the first one that you see is just a still painting of um, a colorful demon creature falling from the sky um, to earth. Um, and if you look through all of these memories, I think it is trying to tell you some kind of story. Um, and I got very confused about what that story is. Um, I will say that having heaped so much praise on Ultros, I think if it does have a weakness, it is perhaps overt narrative vagueness. Um, I was very, very attentive to this game. Um, I read every word that I found, um, whether it's NPCs um, with their dialogue, which is often laden with uh, complex terms that you'll be hearing for the first time. Um, sometimes you will find NPC memories that gives you a few lines about their backstory, fleshes out who they are a little bit. So the gardener, the huntress, all of these different people, qualia, um, different explorers that you will meet from different species that have come to this place. Um, so it, it fills itself out. And whilst I was playing it, I felt perfectly satisfied with what I was getting. 
Um, but when the game was over, I looked back across all of the things that I had learned and I wrote down all of my thoughts about it. Um, and it was a, a kind of a, a confused account of what this might be with a lot of guesswork in it. Um, there is a lot of ephemeral information and like um, tangential information that you will find. There, are, There is a lot of stuff about cleaning negative memories and things like that. Um, but there wasn't enough for me to be able to piece it together. Um, for example, the shade that you meet at the start, who first tells you about the shaman and who sends you on your way, is called Wallet for some reason. Um, and you can look on the Ultras website. Um, there are profiles with a couple of lines about each character. Um, and the lines for Wallet are a former SOD emissary. I have no idea what the SOD is. And until becoming a mnemonic manifestation, a Turton agent for the BOUI. So I've got no idea what this means. I don't know what the SOD is. I don't know what Turton is. I don't know what the BOUI is. And we also get Brunzon, a character who is a Nartian dignitary. Don't know what Nartia is. We get Vasa, a huntress from the realm of Erald. Don't know what Erald is. So I don't know who these people are. Like, there's just not enough information for me to really grasp who they are. There is also a profile for Ultras on the website. And it says, born from the effigy of the entity called Noose. Don't know what Noose is. Um, Ultras is fed with difficult emotions by the Berrien Shaman. Um... I don't know what to make of that. I'm just going to be honest here, and I'm going to say that whilst I love Ultros, um, the story it has stuff there, but it's morsels. And if you put them all together, um, for me, it's just not enough. It is inscrutable. Um, it feels more like a story that is intended for Reddit channel, where there are many, many individual players all chipping in and theory crafting together. Um, and that's not my favourite thing, actually. I like, as the individual player... Um, to have a, a chance of comprehending the story myself uh, with what the game contains, um, a chance to decipher it alone. Um, and Ultras doesn't have that, really. I think unless you want to fill a couple notebooks and start shredding clues together on a pinboard, um, you're not going to get the story of this game. And that's a little bit sad. I would like to know what the story of Ultras is. Um, in my theory, um, the memory that we see of Ultras falling to ground was perhaps abirth of Ultros. Um, Ultros then lived among the people. Um, it had special powers, taught them many things. But then in the sequence of memories, we see Ultros either going through some kind of death or transcendence or causing some kind of apocalypse, which led to something else happening. Um, the, the blanks there are huge, um, and I cannot fill them further based on what I observed during my playthrough of the game. Um, so I think the story is the biggest weak point for sure. Um, but this barely dented my enjoyment of Ultros, that's for sure. Um, I think that the game is an aesthetic masterpiece. I think it is visually dazzling. I think the soundtrack is incredible. Um, I think there is a feast of ambitiously layered gameplay here. I love that it reinvents itself throughout. I haven't even talked about some areas of the game. There is a whole section with like a, a strange sport that you have to play. There is a section with a block puzzle you have to play. Um, there are sections where you are swimming up waterfalls with the abilities that you've got, um, trying to navigate pipes full of blades. There is just so much in the game 
Another little theory of mine was that the people that we meet, um, the various people of various races, have all somehow arrived at this place for different reasons. We meet the gardener, who is a biologist who is investigating the flora and fauna as a scientist. Um, we meet the huntress, who has come here um, to do some kind of samurai precision killing of these animals. We don't really know her full purpose. I never quite learned it. Um, we will also meet the the Gnopas, who have decided to use this station as um, a, a, a sort of a temporal spa. They are using the loop to try and attain eternal life and have built a literal spa um, in this in this building. There is a whole section of the game called the uh, the Pantheon of the Stars that I thought was going to be some kind of astral section. It turns out Pantheon of the Stars, it's a trick. It's like a game show section. And so I got the feeling that we meet people of various species. And one of them is a, a mechanic who is trying to figure out how the machines here work. And so many, many people have come to this station from different races with different perspectives, and they're all trying to figure out what Ultras is. And I think we as the player are trying to do the same thing. So I enjoyed that these characters are all coming from different angles and they all have different thoughts and feelings about what this place is um, and that we as the player are just another person trying to figure it all out. So many things to talk about here and we are at the one hour mark now. So I will just say that I think that this is a huge game. Um, I absolutely love it. The feeling that I got from it, um, I could feel it in my body playing this game. It was so unique and rare. Um, I also find it philosophically interesting. I was very, very struck by the moment where I realized that I was slowly coming into harmony with an ecosystem that I had learned the ins and outs of and could now manipulate. And all of that was put to work in that huge living network puzzle. So I think it's a, it's a coherent, fascinating, varied, engrossing game. Um, I think it is the first great game of 2024. That's Ultras. <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed that hour-long Ultros special. Um, I really enjoyed that game, of course. I think it will be featured on my Games of the Year list come year-end. It's going to be hard to top, man. Um, that has set a high bar. Very special game. Um, there is so much that I didn't talk about in it still, but I can't believe it. I mean, I talked about it for almost an hour, um, and there are still things that are coming back to memory um, that I didn't touch on. Um, but I am going to try and talk to Hugo, the, the lead developer of this game, I believe. Um, over the next week and I will ask Hugo some of my outstanding questions about the design of the game and about the ecosystem and the biology and the biosphere um, the gameplay systems the living network how to design the signposting the map all of these decisions I'm fascinated by it all maybe I can also shake a few answers about the law out of Hugo as well and try and plug some of those gaps in my interpretation of the story um, so hopefully that will come up soon, but if not, I have a few games on the slate. I think Banisher's Ghosts of New Eden is the game that I'll be reviewing first, although there is a lot coming up. Um, releases seem to be speeding up a lot. Lots on the slate, lots to be excited about. Um, thanks very much for listening, and um, if you did enjoy the show, please do come and find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube as Gaming in the Wild. You can always send me an email at johnisgamingintheWild at gmail.com. I um, really appreciate patrons. You can be a patron at patreon.com slash gaming in the wild. 
Um, I love it when people leave reviews on Apple Podcasts, star ratings on Spotify, when people retweet and share the show. Thank you for all of that stuff. And I hope you don't mind me um, saying all of that again and spamming you with that that podcast housekeeping. Um, But until next week, hope you enjoyed the episode. Take care of yourselves and each other. And bye-bye for now.